Masechet Baba Kama Daf Kof Yod Tet, the last half of the Masechet. That one may not buy fruit or wood from a watchman of uh, produce because since he's only the watchman and he's selling it, it's likely that he's stealing it from the owner and selling it, and you can't buy stolen goods. Rav bought produce from a, a sharecropper. Abaya asked him from our Mishnah, you're not allowed to buy produce from uh, from a watchman. And I've explained there's a difference between a sharecropper and a watchman. If it's a watchman, he has no share in the produce. He has no, no nothing. He gets nothing from it. He just gets a paid an hourly wage for um, watching it. However, a sharecropper does have a share in the produce. That's why he's called a sharecropper. He doesn't own the land, but he gets to keep uh, some part of whatever he produces. And therefore, it could very well be that he is selling his share. So that's perfectly legal. So here this Braita teaches that even watchmen you can buy from if they are sitting and selling produce with baskets in front of them and scales. They have a whole storefront, so they're doing it very publicly. Therefore, the owner uh, must be, the owner knows about it, and it's with the owner's permission. Uh, if he's doing it surreptitiously, then that's, that's uh, a curious and we have to suspect that he is uh, um, stealing. But if he has a whole thing, a whole setup there, then it must be that he actually has permission from the owner. He made some kind of deal. Um, and in any case, if whoever's selling it to you says, listen, can you hide it? No matter what kind of storefront he has, if he's telling you to hide it, that means he's doing something wrong. And therefore, you cannot trust him and cannot buy from him. And similarly, one, one can purchase from a watchman at the entrance of the garden, but not from the back of the garden. Again, if it's the entrance of the garden, then it's public. And therefore, we can assume the owner knows about it and is okay with it. But if it says, come to the back alley, you only sell things in the back alleyway that are illegal. So therefore, do not engage in that. Itmar. Kazlan me'emat mutalik no temenu. Rav amar al sheteherov mishelo shmalamar afilu mi'ut mishelo. So now Allah about a thief. Um, uh, when can you buy from him? Um, if you know it's stolen items, obviously you can't. But what if he mixes up his own items with the stolen items? What about a mixture? So Rav says, as long as the majority is his own possession and a minority is stolen. So then, uh, uh, so the, we can follow the majority. Um, you know, I don't know which particular thing. He's selling a whole bunch of items. Some are stolen, some are not. So if it's the majority, then I can assume that whatever I'm buying is not stolen. And Shmuel says, even if a little bit of it is, is his and most of it is stolen goods, still I can say, well, maybe this item that I'm buying is from the minority that belongs to him. I don't know for sure, that this is a stolen item, so therefore um, it's obviously the robber's responsibility to return stolen items. The buyer's responsibility is just to make sure that it's possible that this is not a stolen item. Rav instructed Ada, his attendant, to follow the opinion of Shemuel that says, even if it's some of it, a little bit of it, is his own property, that's permitted. 
ממון אז מסור רב הונא ורב יהודה אחד אמר מותר לבדו ביד ואחד אמר אסור לבדו ביד. Property of an informer, an informer like we saw on the previous couple of דפים is someone who goes to the authorities and say hey this guy has a lot of, he has a whole bank, bank uh, in his uh, basement, uh, there's jewels in there, right, go and get it. <clears throat> um, so since he's informing upon others he um, has a share in the guilt. Um, so we didn't like informers very much. And uh, now what can you do with the property of informers? Uh, there's two opinions. One says you can destroy it actively. It's stolen goods. He got it illegally. You can go and destroy it yourself. And others say, no, you cannot physically destroy it. You can stop him in other ways, um, but you can't actively do so. The opinion says you're allowed to go and destroy it directly will argue that his money shouldn't be any more treated any more stringently than his body. We saw before, snitches get stitches. Um, when someone who informs, remember Rav Kahana, he actually killed him. Informers weren't, always, weren't only putting property of other Jews in danger, but even their lives, if the authorities with thugs would come and take the stuff and then he's going to start complaining easier to just kill him and take his stuff so he's uh, these are really dangerous people and therefore you're even allowed to kill him certainly you'd be allowed to destroy their property one who says do not destroy their property directly would argue that even though the, this person, this informer is evil, but maybe they'll have children who are good, who will inherit, and they'll use it for good. As the Pasuk in Yehov says, the wicked prepare, and then the just put it, put it, uh, uh, wicked prepare a garment, and the just will put it on. Uh, Rambam uh, cites this as well as one of the reasons why Sadi Rasha uh, Vetovlo. Uh, sometimes an evil person gets good because the evil person works hard to big uh, to build a beautiful house, so that he can die and someone who's worthy will take it over. And so, you know, let him have it. He doesn't deserve it, but maybe he'll have children who will. Rav Chista had a sharecropper who would weigh the produce and give Rav Chista his portion, and we would weigh again and take his own portion. Um, Rav Chista, for some reason, was not happy with this and fired him, fired the sharecropper. Um, and he said the pasuk about himself, um, a good man leaves inheritance to his children's children, the wealth of a sinner is laid up for the righteous. The sinner here being the sharecropper, and now that he, he fired the sharecropper, Rav Chista, the righteous, can keep everything. Now it's not clear what the sharecropper did wrong. It actually seems like he is very meticulous in making sure that he's giving an exact amount to the Rav Chista, the owner, and keeping exact amount himself. He's not taking any more, any less. Um, so there's a few explanations. One is that he was actually weighing in a false way. He's using a light uh, stone when he measures out what Rav Chista takes and then a heavy stone so he is actually taking more than Rav so he found that he was looking like he was being very meticulous but actually he was stealing. Uh, now more on that theme we quote another pasuk from Iyov um, that says, what, hope, uh, what is the hope of the godless, though he profits, when God takes away his soul, right? In other words, someone who steals and doesn't care about God and morality, right? What good is what he takes when 
God will take away his soul, which sounds like God will kill the robber. But there's two interpretations of this nafsho. Rav Hunav Rav Chista. Chadama nafsho de nigzal. Vechadama nafsho shel gazlan. One says it's actually the soul of the robbed person. In other words, the... Uh, the robber is taking away the soul of the victim. By stealing from someone, you're taking away not only their money, but also, as we're going to see in a second, their means of eating, and thereby also taking away their soul. Um, Whereas the other opinion takes it more at face value, that because you stole, you're not going to benefit from it because God will kill the robber. Um, the one who says is talking about the soul of the victim, he has a, a pasuk to back him up because it says, so the ways of everyone that is greedy for profit, it takes away the soul of the owner thereof. The owner meaning the victim who owned this item that was stolen. Um, not only is, his, is he robbed of his property, but he, uh, it's also the feeling that you get when if you ever get someone something robbed from you, right? even if it's a small item that's not worth so much, you just feel like, you feel violated, like, you know, you don't feel, you feel totally unprotected, like they could take that. Um, so they could take your your your, your life. Um, so that is a proof that it's the soul of the victim. Pasuk from Mishle, do not rob the weak because he is weak. Neither crush the poor in the gate because Hashem will plead their cause and despoil of life those who despoil them. Means Hashem will take revenge on the robber and take away the robber's life. So that's a clearly an intertext that shows that's the life of the robber that Hashem will take. Now we ask each opinion about the pasuk that the other brought. Doesn't the pasuk say that the robber takes away the soul of the owner, that means the true owner of the item, when he is stolen from, also his soul is taken? He can answer, What does owner mean? It means the current owner, meaning the robber. He doesn't legitimately own it, but it means the soul of the now owner who took the item, Hashem will take his soul um, as punishment for stealing. And the one who says it's the Nigzal's life that is taken, what is he going to do with this pasuk that says, Hashem will despoil the life of the despoiler, meaning the robber. He'll say, this is giving, giving explanation. What is the reason that Hashem will despoil the life of those who despoil them? Because the robber despoiled the soul of the victim. So it's just a reaction because stealing from someone is equivalent to taking their life therefore Hashem will take revenge on the robber by taking the robber's life teaches anyone who robs someone else, even if it's just one peruta. It's not always about the monetary amount. It's just taking something that is, that is not yours and that he, he feels therefore vulnerable that is taken. Or maybe he really needs that, even that peruta, if he's a poor person. 
It's as if he's taking his soul. And we bring a few proofs. Number one, a pasuk in Mishle, so are the ways of everyone that is greedy for profit. It takes away the life of the owner. There you go. It takes away the life. It doesn't matter how much it is. And second, from Yirmiyah, they shall consume your harvest and your bread. And the continuation is that they shall consume your sons and your daughters. In other words, by taking their harvest and their bread, now the person, even if it's not so, not so the monetary value of the harvest and the bread might be just a few dollars, uh, nevertheless, by taking that, now that owner will not be able to feed his children and they'll, then they will starve. So if, that, if that's his meal and you steal a person's meal for his family, they will starve. That's taking away his life. And now, yet two more proofs. One from Yoel. Um, Egypt will be desolate and Edom will be desolate wilderness because they extorted the children of Judah and they've shed innocent blood. So in other words, Egypt and Edom are going to, Hashem is going to take revenge against them. Why? Because they extorted Yehuda. That means, extorted means they forcibly uh, took and even if they paid something for it, um, some little uh, amount for what they stole, um, uh, that's still, that's Hamas, that's still uh, stealing, extortion. And because they did that, that's equivalent to shedding innocent blood. And so they'll get what's coming to them for that. And see here again, Hamas, extortion is equated with shedding blood. And then Shaul um, uh, uh, for, as for, uh, uh, is for Shaul, for his bloody house, because Shaul killed the Giv'onim. Now, we don't find that she, or she, uh, he killed the Giv'onim, but we're going to explain that it's referring to stealing the livelihood of the Giv'onim, and thereby that's considered the same as shedding their blood. Now, the question is, why do you need four Pesukim to teach the same thing? What does each add that the other didn't? So maybe you'll say stealing from a person is like killing that person, but not necessarily it's like, kill, like killing his sons and daughters. That's why we bring the second pasuk, Tashema Besad Banav Ubnotav. His kids are dependent on him. If he has no food, he can't feed his kids, and so you're killing them too. And maybe you'll say that's only if the robber takes the owner's food and he has nothing at all. But if he pays for it, by extortion, maybe then that's not, not like murder. Uh, that extorting B'nai Yehuda, even though they paid something for it, but he needs this food now. And he, this, this money is not, he didn't want to sell it. He needs the food. The money is not sufficient. Um, and therefore, that's also like uh, like murder, um, and uh, Edom will be uh, taken, uh, uh, will be punished for that. And maybe you'll say that's only if you rob actively, actually take the person's thing. But if it's indirectly, maybe that would not be considered murder. So, uh, so we learn from the following story that even indirect uh, causation of stealing is also like murder because when it talks about Shaul um, and his bloody house because he killed the Givonim, where do we see that he killed the Givonim? Doesn't say that before, actively killed the Givonim. Rather, Shaul 
um, directed Doeg HaAdomi to kill Nov, Yira Kohanim. They killed all the Kohanim in Nov, which was the sanctuary town of uh, um, that, and that had holy bread there. And they, the, Nov, the city of Kohanim, would provide the Givonim with water and food. The Givonim were, uh, were uh, the servants and they had to bring, carry uh, the wood. Um, and so they would provide those materials, like the wood, for the Nov Ira Kohanim. And then they would get their salary, they would get food and water as their salary. So their salary, Givonim's salary was dependent on Nov Ira Kohanim. Shaul caused uh, the, the murder of all the Kohanim in Nov. And now that sanctuary was not functioning, any, functioning anymore. And therefore they weren't hiring the Givonim to bring them the materials of the wood. And therefore they did not get paid their water and food. And, there, and so that was taken from them. Now this is very indirect. Nevertheless, Shaul is called the house, the bloody house because he um, indirectly caused the Givonim to lose out on their livelihood. Back to the Mishnah that says, one is allowed to purchase um, items from married women uh, in certain places where it's assumed that the husband would be okay with the woman um, selling these items where they, they, where they usually grow. We'll elaborate on this Mishnah. As the Mishnah said, that one can buy from women wool in Judea and linen in Galilee, right? That's where they grow. And the women there are dealing with uh, with the goods and therefore it's assumed that the uh, husbands are fine and happy with uh, women selling that this these items. But uh, married women cannot sell wine, oil, and flour because women aren't usually selling these things and we assume that it's not with their husband's permission. They're um, just taking the household uh, stash of wine selling it and uh, making money on the side and using it to uh, buy, I don't know, clothes or makeup. I don't know what. One can also not buy from slaves or from children because the assumption is the slave stole something from the house that he wasn't allowed to and is selling it or from children that don't, don't, do not have permission from the father or the owner. Um, Abashul says a woman is allowed to sell some items worth uh, four or five dinar uh, in order to make a cap uh, for her head. This is a picture here of a cap of, uh, that a woman would wear. Um, normally, and so if she needs a cap, so she needs to buy materials to make it, so we assume the husband would be um, acceptable, it would be acceptable to the husband for her to sell a few items just to, just to get a little bit of money so that she can buy a cap so she can properly cover her head. In all cases, if the seller says, hey, hide this, put this in a bag, don't show anyone that I sold it, then we have to be suspicious that these are stolen goods and you can't buy it. Um, a charity collector is going around collecting charity, and uh, if uh, um, a, a someone, uh, uh, if a woman gives him a little bit, some change, right, uh, a little bit of amount, that's fine, he can accept it, but not a lot. In other words, if he goes to, he's going around house to house, he's to collect charity for the communal fund, and the woman comes and takes out a whole safe, a million dollars, he can't accept that because he can't be sure that the husband is okay with her giving away all the uh, the family savings. Um, but if she just gives him a few dollars, then we assume that the husband is fine with his woman, with his wife giving um, to charity uh, some small change. 
והבדדין לוקחים מהן זיתים במידה ושמן, במידה והלא זיתים במועט ושמן במועט. Olive pressers, you can buy from them a lot of oil, um, but not a little bit, or, or olives, but not a, a little bit of olives or a little bit of oil. You can buy a lot because um, if, it, uh, if, you, if the olive presser sells a lot, the owner obviously will notice, right? I gave you this huge amount of olives, where's all the olives? So since the owner will notice and, the, and he's selling it, we assume that he's selling it with the owner's permission. But if it's only a little bit, then we suspect that the um, olive presser is skimming off the top, just selling a little bit of the olive oil or the olives, and the owner won't notice. And therefore, um, isn't, he's not the owner, so we have to suspect that he's stealing it. Uh, the opposite is the case regarding women in the, in the Galilee. Um, their olives were very expensive. And so there, um, you could buy a little bit of uh, a, a, a small amount of olives um, because there it uh, happens often that the husband is embarrassed to uh, sell in front of his house. Maybe uh, you know, there it shows that he's poor, that he has to sell a few olives to make an extra, some extra money. So he's embarrassed to do that. But he tells his wife, listen, you know, if someone comes around, sell them some olives, we need some extra change. And so therefore, um, it's likely that if she's selling some olives from the front of her house, that the husband is okay with it. Um, if it's a little bit, and in the Galilee where it was particularly expensive. And now a story about Avina. He came to Be'mehoza, and the woman came, the woman of the city came and threw at him chains and bracelets to, for, for charity, right? To take and, and give to the poor. So these are obviously very expensive items. And we just saw that this is not allowed. Um, charity collectors can accept from women only a little bit of change that we assume, yeah, their husbands will be okay. It's good to give charity, but you can't go and give away all your jewelry that the, the husbands would not want that. We cannot assume that they would want that. And therefore, you're not allowed to accept it. Why did you accept all of their jewelry? for charity. And Ravina explained, we're in Mechoza. Mechoza was a suburb of the capital of the Persian Empire, cosmopolitan, big city. The people there were very wealthy. And so Ravina, knowing that, says, these, these little trinkets, these chains and bracelets, they're like, they're small compared to what they what else they have. So this is just the extra jewelry that they don't care about. That's what they're giving. So uh, therefore this is for them something small and we can assume that the husbands would be acceptable for them giving away these items for charity. Uh, but at least does show that uh, um, uh, they were wealthy but also that they were very chari charitable and generous. And the last Mishnah of the Masechet teaches Mochin Mosi Hare Elu Really getting down to the wire here to discuss threads of a garment, who gets to keep them. Uh, part of the laundering process is that uh, some threads may come off uh, during the laundering process. And so the launderer is uh, allowed to keep them because very, very little of the wool comes off uh, during laundering. However, the carder, the, the carder, you give him wool to, uh, to uh, uh, brush and there a lot of the wool is going to come off 
during that brushing process. And so we assume that the owner wants it back. The owner is okay for the, for the launderer to keep just a little bit of what comes off. Um, but if it's substantial, then that's worth money and uh, he will want it back so he cannot keep it. A launderer can keep three threads. We're talking about a new garment. When a garment would come new from the from the factory, from the sewer, they would add in extra threads. Kind of like today when you buy a suit and the pockets are sewn together or the back flap. Um, is has a thread in it. So during the manufacturing process and uh, shipping, uh, it's good to have those threads in. But they're not supposed to stay there. They don't look good. I'm supposed to take them out. So they would, uh, the customer would give it to the launderer first, and that was part of the launderer's job is to take out these extra threads. Who gets the threads? Well, if it's up to one, two, or three threads, then the launderer can keep them because that's very little. And we assume the customer doesn't care about them. But if it's more than three, then he has to give it back to the customer because then they're useful. They don't throw anything out in the olden days. Even four, four threads, well, you could use it for something. However, if the threads that the, that the original manufacturer put in were black and the garment is white, so then these stand out and the customer does not want them. Uh, they just don't look good at all. So then the launderer can keep all of them, uh, even if it's more than three. If you give something to a tailor, you'd give him all, not only the garment, but also the material, the, the thread to use to fix the garment. So if after the tailor is done, he still has a sufficient extra of the thread that you could use it to sew with, or let's say the customer gives him a patch, Right, so here's here's my garment, originally has a hole in it, and here gives him a large piece of cloth as a patch, and the, the tailor finishes, and he still has a small amount, three by three finger breaths, that's useful. That's the minimum amount of uh, cloth that you can use for something. So if it's a sufficient that's useful for something, the tailor has to give it back to the owner because the owner will want it, it's his. Uh, but if it's smaller than that, then that's just scraps, um, and that the tailor can keep it. If you have a carpenter, and so um, the, the customer gives the carpenter some wood, and uh, the, the carpenter is shaving it down with an adz, that's this uh, uh, thing here, and so it uh, removes some of the uh, wood to make it nice and even, so that's only a those shavings are a little bit. So therefore, uh, the carpenter can keep it. But if he's cutting it with an axe, an axe is going to chop off significant parts of the wood that are valuable. Then you have to assume that the owner wants it back and he cannot keep it. However, um, that's only if the customer is bringing the material to the workshop of the carpenter. Um, so then the carpenter is working as a contractor to do the whole job. Um, in that case, he can keep uh, the, a small amount of it's just an ads. However, if the carpenter comes to the home of the owner and is doing it there, there he's not working as a contractor, but uh, as, a, as a laborer. And so in that case, even the sawdust belongs to the customer because he's in the customer's house. 
so he can the uh, carpenter cannot even take sawdust with him. So this is the final Mishnah of the Masechet and is dealing with sawdust. I think there's an important lesson here. You might think, well, you know, you're, well, how is this a, a, a nice grand ending to this Masechet, which is all about damages? And I think the answer is that, yes, um, someone who really cares about being ethical should care even about sawdust. And if a person is sensitive to think about who, do, who deserves the sawdust from uh, doing a little bit of work in someone's house versus taking it there, right, or, or, or some, some shavings, um, then, you know, damage is not only about the million-dollar deal or the hundred-dollar thing or the uh, shoplifter who takes a piece of candy. Uh, one has to be sensitive to um, even this little strand, uh, little tiny patch of, uh, of, um, of uh, a cloth, all right, that should be a level of uh, attention to uh, think about uh, that we to make sure that we do not take anything that doesn't belong to us and not to cause any damage at all. So I think it's actually a perfect way to um, uh, to bring home the point that the the details really matter when it comes to everything, uh, including interpersonal. Relationships. Then we have a Braita that expands on the Mishnah and says that you're allowed to buy strands of wool from a launderer because we just said that a launderer is allowed to keep um, a little bit of the strands of wool. So you can assume that they really belong to him. Um, and a launderer is allowed to take two uh, threads of a garment. Um, so, uh, so when he's, uh, you know, taking, taking off the extra threads of a new garment. Uh, Mishnah said three. The Gemara will ask about that. That's the rest of the Baraita. A carter, he's taking a piece of cloth and he wants to stretch it out, right? After it was, uh, as part of the process um, of laundering, it would get smaller, so he's got to stretch it out. And what they would do is they would put three stitches at the edges and attach the stitches to uh, nails to, to stretch it out. Um, so the law says he should only put uh, up to three stitches. Um, because the more you stretch it out, the more uneven it's going to get. And so you're going to stretch it out too much, become more uneven. You're going to have to cut off after after he stretches it out. Then they even it out by cutting off the um, pieces sticking out. So you don't want to stretch too much because then you're going to have to cut off too much. But you want to stretch it enough that it's going to it'll have a good shape. So it uh, shouldn't be more than three. And when the carter is combing it to make it look nice, he should not comb it along the warp, but rather along the weft. If you do it along the warp, that's kind of going against the grain, and that will make the make it weaker. So don't go along the warp, but rather along the weft. So it will still look nice, but not damage the garment. And then after it's stretched and he has to uh, cut it, so he should even it out along the length, but not along the width. Along the length is when you're wearing it, you can see that side of it, and it won't look nice if it's all bumpy. But along the width, uh, you can't tell, so don't cut off because uh, it doesn't matter. And when he cuts off to uh, that the length um, to make it uh, even, you're allowed. He's allowed to cut off even up to a tefach, um, because even though that's a lot of uh, material, but still you want it to make it make sure that it looks nice 
when he is wearing it. That's the end of the Braita. Now we ask a few questions about it. In this Braita says that the launderer can keep two, but our Mishnah says he can keep three of those extra strings that are that are that you are put into the garment whilst being manufactured. It's not a question. If we're the, the Baraita is talking about strong thick threads that are very useful, even two, um, uh, two that he can keep, but three the owner wants back. Whereas if it's thin threads, then we let the tailor keep even three, uh, but four the owner would want back. Uh, the the Braita that we cited said you should not comb it along the warp. Um, but there's a Braita that says the opposite. So how, how do we deal with that? The first Braita, the one that we quoted above, is talking about a regular, ordinary, a daily garment where it has to stay strong because you're wearing it all the time. And so therefore you don't want to weaken it. And uh, that's why um, it says don't do it along the warp. However, if you're talking about an elegant cape that you wear just once in a while, and it'll be more beautiful if uh, you um, if you comb it the other way. It will weaken it a little, but that's okay. We want we want the beauty over the strength in that case, since it's an elegant garment and it has to look very nice. Teko says that the carter he should he should put three loops but uh, and not more than that. When we're counting the, the loops, these stitches, how do you count them? Um, does that mean in, one in and out is one stitch? So you could do one in, in and out, another in and out, right? But uh, three of them, or does each in and each does that count as one and out another, and then back in is already three? And we leave that question standing. Uh, it says that you even out uh, along the length, but not along the width. But there's another bright that this is the opposite. And the answer is it depends on different types of garments. Um, if you're talking about a regular garment and you want it to be uh, even, let's say on the bottom where you can see the hem, uh, but a belt is the opposite. Belt, uh, you're wearing you know, a, a perp- in a perpendicular way to the way you usually um, wear a garment. And so the belt, you want the width to be even, um, but you don't care about the end that you're just going to tie into a knot. A person is not permitted to buy strands from a carter because they don't belong to him. As the Mishnah said, when a carter is combing that wool, a lot of stuff comes off, and so therefore we assume that the balabite, the owner, wants it back. So if you're buying it from the carter, what is the carter doing with it? Probably he stole it. However, there are places where the custom is that the carter keeps it. If you're in that kind of place, then the carter has it rightfully, and then you can buy it from him. But in any place, you are allowed to buy from the carter a cushion full of, uh, that has stuffing made of these strands or a mattress full of these strands of wool. What's the reason? Even, you can do this even in a place where he's not allowed to keep them, and uh, therefore you cannot buy them directly, but if they're in stuffing, then it's okay, because he acquires them through a change of form. Even something that's stolen, once you change it into a different form and doesn't look the same, so it acquires a new name, um, it's no longer just strands of wool, now it's a cushion. So he acquires it thereby. Um, of course, he's still a thief, you'd have to pay the original owner, 
but the buyer um, is can make a legitimate uh, sale um, by uh, uh, through that. Tenora banan en lochin mi gardi lo irin velo nirin velo pun kalin velo shiure pekiot. Baraita teaches that. One uh, may not buy from a weaver uh, these woolen wads that hold the bobbin in place or the heddles or the threads of a bobbin, all these different parts or the remnants of coils that were on the spool, all different parts of the weaving process because we assume that they belong to the customer. So the customer would provide the um, these materials and the weaver would just use them. If the weaver has them, that means he may have stolen them, so you can't buy it. You can buy from a weaver a spotted garment. Now, if it's a spotted garment, probably means he, he um, stole little pieces of, uh, of, uh, <clears throat> of yarn from uh, different jobs, and then he made, one was blue, one was red, he was uh, doing all things, and he put them all together. And he made a garment out of it. Uh, now, even though it's stole, they might be stolen, all these threads, still you're allowed because he made a physical change and turned it into a garment. Or even if he didn't make it into a garment, he just made it into uh, threads, uh, warp threads or weft threads. There are different sizes. Or if he, even if he um, uh, spun it, um, uh, or spun it or wove it, doesn't matter. As long as he made a significant change, you can buy it. We analyze the Braita Amri Hashta Tavui Vish Shakli Arugmi Baya my Arig Tihi. Now why does I have to say uh, say so many examples? If you if you're allowed to buy the thread that he just spun and made into thread, which is a small change change, then all the more so if he wove a whole garment out of it. So why do you have to tell me that uh, if it wove a whole garment that you're allowed to buy it? And the answer is no. When it says woven, it doesn't mean like a really nice woven garment, but rather he just twisted into change, cha- chains, which is uh, just a small change. And even a small change is sufficient for him to acquire it. And then your uh, your um, Purchase is a valid purchase. Tenora banan en lochim in hasaba lo otot velo dugmaot velo telushim shel semer avalochim mehen beget savua tavui begadim hashta tavui shakil begadim ibaya imai begadim namte same principle but now for a dyer. Don't buy from a dyer little pieces of wool as a test uh, uh, or a sample or um, a detached piece of wool because that means that uh, the um, buyer. The customer gave him these this item. He's supposed to give it back. It belongs to the customer, but he kept them. They're stolen, so you can't buy that. However, if you buy a whole garment of colored things, the dyer took all these little swatches that he had as samples, and he put it together in a, a fun uh, pattern. And so this cloth, uh, this cloth is made of all these patches, but that's you're allowed to buy that because he significantly changed it. That's what the Baraita says. We asked um, if you're allowed to buy. Oh, you're also allowed to buy um, uh, uh, buy a whole bag, a whole uh, a garment that's uh, like that, or even uh, spun threads. Um, or, uh, or or clothes that are made from this, even threads that are different colors. So he took some of the threads that he had he was using in dyeing, and he put it together. That's also a, a significant change. So now we ask if even threads 
you're, um, you're allowed to keep, or that's a relatively small amount of change, then entire garments, do you even have to say? Why do you have to bother saying it? And the answer is, my begadim, nam te, we're talking about felt. Felt garments are not uh, woven together, they're just pressed together. Um, they're not spun, um, so uh, they're not they're not made um, from weaving. But so that's a relatively um, small uh, amount of processing, and even though even though they're not very processed, even that you're allowed to keep. If you give some leather to a tanner. And then during the process, he's cutting and there's trimmings uh, of it or detached hairs. All that goes back to the customer. The customer wants it back. They're valuable and they'll use it for something else. However, whatever comes up when being soaked, you soak that uh, hide um, in, in water and some stuff is separated from it. The tanner is allowed to keep that little separated stuff. The Mishnah said, if the extra um, things sewn on a garment are black and the garment is white, then the, then the customer does not want them. They don't go look what look nicely on the on the um, uh, on the garment, and therefore the uh, customer is happy for the launderer to take them away and keep them. Rav says that. A, um, a, a launderer is called a kasra in Aramaic, and it's a good name for him because kasar, the short threads, he can take for himself. These are little threads that are just there to protect the edges of the garment um, uh, during manufacturing. So these short threads, they, uh, they're worthy of his name. He keeps them. Uh, the law of sisit is that you have to attach the techelet in a hole near the corner, but it can't be too close to the corner. It has to be at least a thumbnail, meaning the from the thumbnail to the knuckle, has to be that far away from the edge of the garment. Uh, that's what the hole. The hole can't be right at the edge. It has to be inside a little. Now, when you're making that determination, you include everything, including the extra strings that uh, are attached to it, that's also included so that um, uh, as long, even counting that, um, it's if it's uh, far enough from the edge, even including those threads, you can put the C, you're allowed to put the C, include the seat in a hole there. However, Ravida says, my son Yitzchak is particular about this and he does not include those threads when he's making the calculation. He makes sure that the hole is even further in than that. A tailor, um, uh, you give him uh, clothing and you give him some thread to uh, to sew it up. If there's a lot of thread left, enough to uh, to still use, then he has to give it back. Um, same thing with the patch. We ask, What does that mean, enough to continue sewing? How long of a string is enough that it's still use for, useful for for uh, sewing. Lavase answered, it's a length of a needle and beyond the length of a needle. We question what does Lavase mean by that exactly? Did he mean a length of a needle and beyond that another length of a needle, two needle lengths worth? Or did he mean one length of a needle and just a little bit more, basically one, one a length of a needle. Look how, look how uh, uh, exacting the Gemara wants us to be, even the extra string, ex precisely how long 
is a as a length of a string that an owner would want to keep want to take back want to return want returned or what he doesn't care about so we try to answer it tashima tetanya khayat shir takhut pakhut mikedelit pol bo matit shahi pakhuta mi shalosh shalosh bizman shabalabait makpida lahen are elu shabalabait and balabait makpida lahen are elu shelo braita teaches that if a tailor left over a thread after it finished working, and it was less than amount that you can use to sew with, or a patch, and it was less than three by three. So generally, we saw Nam Mishnah, um, most people don't care about that, so that's why you can keep it. The Baraita is adding, well, it really depends, subjective. If the owner cares about it, then you have to return it to the, to the customer. If the customer doesn't care about this small amount, that's even less than the amount that you can use to stitch with, then the tailor keeps it. Now we can derive an answer from this Braita. If you say that we're talking about two needle lengths, well, even if it's less two, 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 two needle lengths, still you could use it to make one loop. You could make one stitch with it. But if you think that the minimum that the Mishnah was talking about was one needle length, then when this Braita says even less than that, what what can you use that for? It's too it's too little. You know, it's 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 um uh, only the length of a needle. So by the time you put the needle in, then that's it. It runs out of uh, thread. So you can't even make one stitch. So uh, that's impossible. That anybody would possibly care, no matter how stingy a person is. Right? There's no one that could possibly care about such a small amount. Therefore, it means that the minimum uh, standard amount of enough to use is two needle lengths. Mishnah said, a carpenter, what he takes with an adds is uh, only a little bit those shavings, but with an axe is a lot, he has to give back to the customer. We have a challenge. This Braita says what a carpenter removes with an adds or that what comes that comes off with a saw belong to the customer. So that's where the contradiction is. Contradiction is that the Mishnah says the carpenter keep keep the adds shavings and the Braita says he cannot. Braita then continues and says that which comes out of a drill, you drill a hole, there's a little sawdust that comes out or a plane. This is a plane that um, you put uh, go back and forth over the wood and make it and makes it um, uh, smooth uh, or if you scrape with a saw. So all that, that sawdust, the carpenter can keep, that's very little. So what do we do with the contradiction about the ads? Lavas is no contradiction. The Tanav and Mishnah was living in a different place where they used the terms differently. In the Tanav Mishnah, they had two kinds of such blades. Uh, the larger one's called an axe, and the smaller one an adds. And that's why, since the adds that uh, he says is the smaller one, that's why the Mishnah says the carpenter is allowed to keep it. Um, whereas the Baraita, the Tanav that Baraita, they had just one um, uh, such tool, and they called it an adds. But actually, their ad, what they call adds is really an axe. 
um, of the Mishnah, and that's therefore big, and that cuts off a lot, and that's why the Braita said that that you have to return to the owner. Uh, if someone was doing, if the carpenter is doing work in the customer's house, then even the sawdust belongs to the customer. So now we talk about some other professions. Stone chiselers uh, may keep a little bit of the chips of the rock. That's okay. You don't consider that robbery. That's just normal. Uh, the owner does not expect to uh, keep the chips of those rocks. A pruner, who's again, he's working in the owner's field. So this is similar to the carpenter who we just said. Um, he uh, the the sawdust is kept by the homeowner. Uh, so here the pruner is just cutting off a little bit of the extra branches to make the bush or the tree healthier. If he prunes trees or prunes vines or trims shrubs or weeds plants or hoes vegetables, then it depends on what the owner thinks. If he cares about it, then the the pruner is not allowed to keep it. But if the owner doesn't care about it, then the pruner is allowed to keep. The, the prunings or the weeds that he takes out. More about weeds. Uh, daughter and green grain. Here's daughter. Um, they they they're not uh, stealable because they're they're uh, weeds. Uh, they don't. The owner doesn't plant them. Doesn't want them there. You can just take them. Uh, the weeder can go and take them. Unless you're in a place where people do care about them and they really they do like them. Some of the some of this can be used to make beer. Um, so if particular about them, then then you're not allowed to take them. Ravina says the Matamechasya is a place where they do care about the daughter and the green wheat. So don't think you can go to Matamechasya and then just pull up some uh, daughter and keep it. Uh, the, that's the last point, which shows that um, even within these very particular things about uh, just a, a weed, there also there's not one standard, right? Just because in your place you say, well, I don't care about this, so therefore I could take it from someone else. No, it depends on each person. Some people are more particular, even about small things, and some places are particular. So you have to respect the people and the places that you're in. Even if you say, why are they being so stingy? That's not your uh, issue to ask why are they so stingy. Um, your responsibility is to say, I want to make sure I don't steal. Not even something that's not even a, a piece of a thread. If we're so careful to make sure that we don't cheat or steal from someone, even down to sawdust, then certainly we'll be sensitized to um, uh, people's bigger needs and treat everybody with full respect. Um, and never come to damages, uh, but make sure we deal always with everybody uh, with honesty and integrity. Hazran alach hagozel batra uselik ala masechet baba kama hazakim uberuchim. Baruch Adonai leolam. Amen veamen.